When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be in the studio with you today, Ashley. Yes, we have an exciting episode coming for you guys. That's right. This is a, a Jesuitical first today. Yep. We've, so we've talked to a couple of bishops before on the show. Those have been great conversations. But today we have our first red hat. We are talking to Cardinal Robert McElroy, the Bishop of San Diego. That's right. Cardinal McElroy is the author of a new article in America magazine titled Cardinal McElroy on Radical Inclusion for LGBT People, Women, and Others in the Catholic Church. And the essay is fascinating. You know, Cardinal McElroy is an important voice in the church and really a leading figure in some of the, the key discussions that are happening right now, especially in light of the Synod on Synodality. And it definitely has kicked up a conversation. Yes, it certainly has. It's uh, gotten responses from such esteemed former Jesuitical guests as Ross Douthat in the New York Times and many other outlets. And in it, he goes into kind of the theology and pastoral practice around the Eucharist and his vision for a much more open approach to who who comes to communion and and how we reach out to people on the peripheries of the church. That's right. And so this is a really, really important discussion. We don't make this ask super explicitly very often, but I, I think this is a really important episode to share with your friends and your family, right? This is sort of a, a key moment in the church and a conversation with a key leader in it. So uh, please, please, please uh, spread the word, share this around. Um, if, you, if you are here listening for the first time, welcome. Um, we hope to see you back. Yes. And in Signs of the Times this week, we talk about a new report that sheds light on the sexual abuse perpetrated by the founder of L'Arche, John Vanier, as well as uh, some interesting Catholic trivia about the kicker of the Kansas City Chiefs. And finally, we talk about Pope Francis's trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. One of my first really strong memories from growing up was living through the events of September 11, 2001. And since then, I've really been fascinated by the intersection of religion and violence. It's something I studied at in university, and it's something I've been able to return to through the course at Wondrium called Thinking About Religion and Violence. The course looks at the roots of violence in scripture and other places and looks at how it intersects with, with racism and violence against women and sexuality. And it's it's a really fascinating course. And like Wondrium, it's taught by experts in the field. Yeah, I was fascinated by this course, especially, you know, a lot of uh, sort of 
key core concepts, both in our in our faith and other religions, center around violence and peace building and sort of where those two things intersect, you know, things like martyrdom, human sacrifice, uh, where all that comes from, where is it happening today, where has it happened historically? Those are all like really big questions, but sometimes I feel like they get tossed around in kind of a uh, sloppy way. And I thought this course did an excellent job of giving us sort of the, the historical context about uh, the intersection of religion and violence and also what we might be able to do about it today. Yeah, that's why Wondrium is our favorite educational platform. With documentaries, how-tos, and more, Wondrium covers just about anything you and I can imagine. That's right. We highly recommend signing up for Wondrium. There's a huge selection of videos. There's like 8,000 hours of content. And it gives you the flexibility to switch to audio only, which is, this is something I love. So these lectures, you can watch on video if you want. But if you're into podcasts, because maybe you're a fan of this show, um, you can sort of switch to that, which is just a really great way to kind of consume some of this content. It's high quality. It's uh, The programs are expert-led. They're easy to follow. And they're beautifully filmed if you are watching on video. Yes. And there are no commercials, no tests, or stress just the enjoyment of learning. So learn about what you love and love learning about it with Wondrium. And do what we did. Sign up for Wondrium now. Yeah, Wondrium is offering our listeners two years for the price of one. And that that's a screaming deal. Uh, so to get that, you need to sign up with our special URL, which is wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, you can get two years of Wondrium for the price of one at w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m dot com slash Jesuitical. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And our first story is about a new report from an independent commission that was appointed by L'Arche International to shed more light on the sexual abuse committed by its founder, Jean Vanier. Uh, so some background on L'Arche. Uh, Jean Vanier founded the first L'Arche community in France in the 1960s, and today there are over 100 L'Arche communities in 38 countries where intellectually disabled and non-disabled people live together in community. Um, and though not a priest, Vanier claimed to live a celibate life and offered spiritual direction to the people he worked with and others. Yeah, so... Backing up a little bit, in 2020, which is a year after Vanier died, an internal report revealed that Vanier had sexually and spiritually abused six non-disabled adult women who had come to him for spiritual direction um, over the years. This new report brings the number of victims to at least 25 and gives some background and evidence that sexual exploitation was sort of what Jean Vanier had for primary motivation when he founded L'Arche. Yeah, so the report says that uh, Vanier created L'Arche as a, a, quote, screen to reunite a religious sect called L'Ovive, which was founded by Thomas Philippe, a Dominican priest, um, and was eventually disbanded for their exploitative, quote unquote, mystical sexual beliefs and practices. So according to the report, those practices included sexual abuse, collective delirium, and incestuous representations of relationships between Jesus and Mary. That, that kind of abusive part of the L'Arche community seems to have been, stayed contained to that first home in rural France as the group grew throughout the world. Um, but still, you know, when this first came out two years ago and now again with this report, it's a, a really painful uh, revelation for uh, the people who live in these communities and also for the people who who looked up to Vanier during his life as kind of a living saint. Yeah. I, I mean, when he died, there were a ton of tributes to him. He was very well respected and loved within the Catholic community. And I, Larsh does amazing work. And I, you know, I, I know people who have really like taken up the Christian call to service to like live in these communities of like radical love and inclusion. And I, 
I imagine it was hard for me just from the outside. Um, I've never been, I've never really been involved with Larsh, but I know, I know and respect a lot of people who have given a lot of their lives to it. I can only imagine what it was like to try and sort through these like super complicated feelings where you've got this founder who's, you know, clearly being, you know, it, it's being revealed that he participated in these things. And all the while, like you can see the good work happening on the ground. I can't, I can't imagine how to like sort through that, especially if you're, you know, right in the middle of it. Yeah. I will say that. I'm hesitant to even call this a faint silver lining, but one thing that has been apparent um, is just the really um, unflinchingly honest and transparent way that Larsh has gone about investigating these allegations. You know, they were the ones who first did the internal review, and then they're the ones who asked for an independent commission to look into it further over the past two years. Um, and, And they've just, they've been honest about how painful this is and how they are dedicated to um, restorative justice for the victims and and making sure this abuse is not happening anywhere in, in their communities. All right. What's our next story, Zach? So uh, NFL playoffs are continuing on and the uh, Super Bowl is now set thanks to a last second field goal by Kansas City Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker, which um, we watched together Sunday night. I was sort of down on that happening, you know, being from Ohio. I'm a, I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, but uh, Joe Burrow has very high approval rating in Ohio right now. So I was pulling for him and the Bengals. Um, but I was surprised to learn a new fun fact about uh, the Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker um, that circulated on Twitter in the, in the light of his sort of heroics in the game. And it's that uh, Butker is Catholic. Um, and not only is he Catholic, but he is very vocal about his admiration and love for the traditional Latin mass, which I was, you know, quite surprised to find out. There aren't that many of them. And for one of them to be an NFL kicker, I thought that was surprising. Yep. And not only that, he learned to be an altar server for the traditional Latin mass. Which is something that Harrison Butker and I have in common. I should say another thing that we have in common, because <laughs> oh I could probably, you know, <laughs> kick a field goal from like 50 yards too. Right. But I also learned how to be an ultra certain traditional Latin Yeah, So I imagine it's a pretty intricate thing with lots of rules and yeah. So. Yeah, it's not easy. It, it, I mean, I will say that ultra serving in any mass is uh, sort of a daunting thing for me at least. Um, but particularly within the Latin mass, there's there's some pretty like militaristic instructions you got to follow in movements, yeah. um, which he really loves. Yes, and he talked about this at length in an interview with Catholic News Agency uh, this time last year. And he said, quote, I feel like I can be a voice for all those who feel like they're being persecuted for their love of the traditional sacraments. And that, of course, is a reference to Pope Francis's restrictions on the Latin Mass. Yeah, and he says... He really loves Latin Mass and I think kind of felt blindsided by Pope Francis's restrictions on it, which we've heard from a lot of people. And um, he says his biggest concern is trying to give his children access to the sacraments in the traditional form. And that's actually something in particular that Pope Francis was very intent on really rooting out. Like, if you want to go to Mass, that's one thing. But like, there's not a separate order of sacraments. But to his credit, he's also made it clear that he's not a schismatic. Um, He said, we can't leave the church. We're Roman Catholics. And I think we need to stand up for truth. We need to stand up for the church. But at the same time, we have to have charity. So he's giving advice to his fellow traditional Latin mass attendee. So I don't know who I'm cheering for in the Super Bowl. Not wanting to be a schismatic. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a pretty low bar. I don't think anyone wants to be a schismatic. Um, I don't know if I'm going to cheer for him in the Super Bowl. I really don't like either of these teams. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm cheering for like good commercials, but um, maybe we'll see him incensing the the goalposts <laughs> before the game. Um, who knows? What's our last story, Ashley? 
Yes, so as we are recording this, Pope Francis is in the middle of his long-awaited trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. These are two conflict-ridden countries uh, that are at once rich in natural resources, but also suffer from uh, great poverty and violence. Yeah, so that's happening right now. This episode's dropping on Friday. Um, at the time, Pope Francis will have landed in South Sudan, and he's bringing a message of peace to these countries. Um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, millions have been killed in recent decades, and many more have been displaced as well. Yeah, and his time in South Sudan uh, in particular uh, can kind of be seen as a follow-up to one of the most enduring images that a lot of people have of Pope Francis, that of him getting down on his knees and kissing the feet of the president and vice president of South Sudan when they came to the Vatican uh, for a spiritual retreat because these two political leaders come from different tribes that have been warring with each other in in over the years in South Sudan. Uh, so this was a really dramatic gesture of peace. And he's now following that up with, you know, not only talking to the leaders, but being present with the, the people of South Sudan who have suffered the most. Yeah, I, that image certainly stuck with me when it happened. But I, since time has gone on, I had kind of forgotten that it was South Sudanese leaders who were there and that's who he's, whose feet he was kissing. Um, but I was reminded of that in this really great uh, YouTube uh, explainer that we put out at America Magazine. Um, so major shout out to um, Kevin Jackson, Chris Bospielman, and Ricardo da Silva, and the rest of the video team for for really sort of I didn't know a lot about the 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 background conflicts in South Sudan, and they do a great job of catching you up to speed in like under twenty minutes about sort of okay, what are the two different factions? What's the history? Like South Sudan is the world's youngest country, which I had also not realized. Um, so definitely check that out. It's going to be in our our show notes, um, but it's a great YouTube explainer and gives a lot of rich context to the Pope's visit. Yeah. And on top of that, our Vatican correspondent, Jerry O'Connell, is on the ground with the Pope in South Sudan. So go to americamag.org for continuing coverage of the trip from Jerry. And now stick around for our conversation with Cardinal Robert McElroy. <laughs> Joining us from San Diego is Cardinal Robert McElroy. Cardinal McElroy is the Bishop of San Diego and the author of the new article at americamagazine.org on radical inclusion for LGBT people, women, and others in the Catholic Church. Welcome to Jesuitical, Cardinal. Great to be with you. And, and first of all, uh, we were talking about this internally and we were trying to decide how to refer to you. And, you know, on the one end, we have like your most eminent preeminent nince to to bob um so somewhere in the middle of those two extremes uh, how should we refer to you well mostly we either do cardinal bishop or whatever all right cardinal all right that sounds good cardinal um and secondly wanted to thank you you've been writing for america for a long time um there you know there's articles on the website going back to when you were uh monsignor McElroy, but I know you've been a, a long supporter of the magazine and contributed to our pages for a long time. You, you've got a longer standing relationship with America than we do. So so thank you. So we do want to get to your uh, article on radical inclusion a bit later. It sparked a lot of conversation in the wider church. But first, because you are the first cardinal to come on Jesuitical, we want to ask you a bit about your ministry. What's a day in the life uh, as a cardinal in the church? I know it's only been uh, less than a year, but uh, maybe you can give us, our listeners uh, a taste of what, what your new role is. Well, uh, I've been Bishop of San Diego for eight years, and I continue in that role. And that's my principal 
life and, and ministry. Uh, that hasn't changed much. The, the role of a cardinal really has a couple of different elements to it. Um, but in a sense, they're all side jobs. Uh, my, my primary <laughs> Uh, ministry is here as being Bishop of San Diego. One is, um, uh, I feel almost like Prince Harry, a spare. <laughs> You're there and waiting for when there's a, a, a pope has either resigned or dies. And then you're part of the conclave, the electors to, to elect a new pope. So we're spares till then. Uh, in addition, though, uh, at, at the Vatican, they have a series of committees. Uh, many of the departments are effectively uh, co collectives. They're, they're not just a single individual uh, running it. And so uh, the cardinals are on from different parts of the world are on those committees. I'm on two of them. So I have to be in Rome sometimes for those committee meetings. Uh, and, and then uh, thirdly, uh, the work of a cardinal is to try to assist the Pope in various ways in uh, maintaining the unity and the uh, universality of the church. So those are kind of the three elements of being a cardinal, but all of them are really secondary to my primary role, which is as the Bishop of San Diego. Picking up on that third uh, responsibility that you mentioned, um, without betraying confidence, what's your relationship with Pope Francis like? Is, um, are you guys um, texting all the time or... We don't text all the time, and uh, uh, when we uh, mostly when I speak with him is when I'm over in Rome for something, um, and uh, with conversations about different issues, many of which are about the United States and the Church of the United States. He always asks what's going on with with the refugees and the migrants. That's a huge mm. concern to him, um, and so we we speak about that a lot, and then and then. Uh, how the church in the United States in general is faring. And why do you think that is, or, or what do you think his hope is for the church here in the United States? Well, of course, his view of the church uh, is really reflected in his view of synodality, which is kind of a culture which includes several elements. That is, of, of listening to God attentively, of listening to one another with respect, of, of inclusiveness and participation, of celebration and rootedness in the Eucharist and the Word of God. Those are synodality is not seeking a particular set of outcomes. It is rather a culture that we're trying to build up in the life of the church so that we truly listen with respect to one another. It's so difficult in our society now, uh, across lines where there are deep disagreements. It's interesting that you say that one of your roles is helping to maintain and support the universality of the church, part of what the College of Cardinals does. But in recent weeks, we've seen some pretty stark criticisms of the Pope from now your late brother Cardinal, Cardinal George Pell. So I'm curious how you received the news that Cardinal Pell came out with a pretty explosive memorandum uh, that called the Pope's uh, papacy a catastrophe. Um, how do you deal, that, deal with that sort of disagreement within the college? Well, uh, you know, the church is not a monolithic institution. And there are disagreements about things. You know, th th there's a tremendous amount of commonality that unites us. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, Son, Spirit, and our personal relationships that we form with God and that all members of the church uh, strive in their lives to live out and live out the, the teachings of the gospel as best, as best we can, knowing that we all fail in those areas and that we depend upon God's grace. So 
on the whole range of issues that are the most important part. There's an interesting thing in, in, that's not talked about a lot that's called the hierarchy of truths in Catholic faith. Some people believe, think that uh, the Catholic Church believes that every, every teaching is, is uh, the same in importance. It isn't. Uh, there's a hierarchy of truths means there's certain things that are crucial to being a Catholic. And those are the ones I just talked about. There's a whole lot of teachings that, that go on in the life of the church that are much less important, okay? So uh, there are many disagreements. Um, they're not uh, among the cardinals. The disagreements are not among those I'm talking about at the height of the hierarchy. That's not where they are. They're important disagreements, uh, but they're, they're, they're ones. When I was a pastor, I used to uh, give talks in my own parish and then uh, in other parishes. Somebody asked about saying, I have a problem with a, a certain teaching of the church and I find it hard to accept this one. Does that mean I can't be Catholic? So what I would say is, will everyone in the room please raise their hand who obeys every teaching of the Catholic church? <laughs> and often there would be one or two men. It was always men. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Not infrequently, their wives would haul their hands down. <laughs> say, no, you don't. <laughs> That's important for the context, you know, that all of us, A, find certain things difficult to live out and find certain teachings of the church hard to understand and accept. And so, uh, but it's not in that core area. The, the, the core area is, is what makes us uh, people of faith and makes us a universal church. And it's not that the other issues are unimportant, but they're not at the very center of what it means to be a Catholic. And so I think any discussion of, you know, where Carlos disagree, and we do disagree on things, but it's not at those those elements at the heart of the gospel. It's a good point, and it, it's a good segue to talk a little bit about your article, which has um, caused a lot of uh, debate and disagreement. There have been a number of uh, published responses to it. Uh, in your mind, what's the What's the thrust of the essay? Because there are a number of things that other people sort of lasered in on or picked up on. But it, it, what were you trying to get across is sort of the thesis of the piece. The essay I wrote recently for America is part of a trilogy, okay? Uh, last year, I wrote a piece on what is the culture of synodality? That is, what is the direction of this? Where is the Holy Father pointing us to go as a church and to be as a church? This is the second, which is on inclusion. And then next month, I have one that's, sorry to tell you, is going to be in common wheel. It's looking at the synodal dialogues that occurred in the United States and asking what that says about the major elements of synodality, where they're lived out, and where we need to work harder. So it's, those three things need to be taken in context into, in terms of understanding what at least what I'm trying to say you know, that, that synodality is a process that's crucial. It's a culture, and it's a spiritual endeavor. It was clear in the uh, consultation of the 500,000 uh, Catholics in the United States who participated in small group meetings. Um, and and, and I, I want to underscore, that is the largest consultation, non-governmental consultation of any kind by any institution in the history of our country. So, so sometimes people are saying, oh, only, uh, only a small percentage of it's the largest consultation of any kind on any topic by any non-governmental institution in our country's history. Yeah, any any company would be thrilled with that sort level of feedback or participation, right? 
This wasn't just feedback. About 500,000 went to meetings in small groups and shared from their heart on these very basic questions. What are your joys in the church? What are your sorrows? And what are your hopes in the church? And so it, it, it was a major undertaking that the people shared their hearts and souls in very meaningful ways. The groups left very happy with each other and very spiritually bonded on a variety of ways. And yet, when they looked at the notes for those gatherings, they were disagreeing on issues of substance. That's what synodality is. It's coming together and people sharing and listening and understanding. It's a common faith and a common spirituality that binds us together. And then we struggle on a number of these other issues. So the, 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 the article that came out recently uh, deals with questions of inclusion. That's a very difficult, polarized area within our own society now. And it's true within the life of the church. After our small group uh, synodal meetings, we did a survey of about 27,000 people here in San Diego Catholics uh, on a range of issues. But one of the questions, uh, or three of the questions were on inclusion. Those were the most highly polarized results that we got. So it's a very volatile area because it touches deeply in, in human hearts and people's worldviews. Just to get a little more concrete, who are we talking about including or excluding? Who are the groups you're addressing in this piece? Well, uh, in the dialogues that occurred uh, uh, for these synodal dialogues across the country, it's all the same. It, from, from place to place in the country, it's amazing the level of commonality in the major themes. So uh, uh, the, the positive themes are you know, joy in the Eucharist and sacramental life of the church, joy in the community that people find, uh, uh, joy in the hope that they express for the future. Uh, the, the challenges, one of them, is, of course, is young adults, which is such an enormous challenge, is the drifting of young adults out of the church. That probably more than any other was the challenge that came from these dialogues where people were saying, we've got to do something about this. But one of the other sets of, of challenges was on this whole area of inclusion, specifically the treatment of women and divorced and remarried LGBT uh, persons. Also, a tandem with that, racism, discrimination against ethnic groups, you know, against the, the undocumented, all these sorts of marginalization that occurs. So my, my article was an effort to say, all right, the people of God have spoken, and while often they're highly polarized in these issues, the clear majority of people are in favor of changes on uh, on each of these in each of these areas. So my article is an effort to explore that how the church might move to uh, lessen exclusion within the within the life of the church. I was focusing on the internal life of the church. Now, some people heard that and were, uh, I would say rankled by the idea that inclusion is sort of like a code word for changing church, church teaching or, you know, specifically looking at inclusion and relationship to the Eucharist and our practice of celebrating the Eucharist. Um, and some people were like, oh, is is Cardinal McElroy in favor of open communion? And, you know, and I can see some reading of that where you, you mentioned that we sort of focus so heavily on issues of sexual morality um, and especially how we exclude people. Are, are you saying that, like, what does that look like practically if we're to sort of remove those barriers? Is it is it open communion? 
Well, open communion, it got misinterpreted a little bit in that I used at one point once the word baptized, uh, all the baptized. I didn't mean non-Catholics. I was talking about it in the context of the church. Sure. So, but what I was uh, proposing is, and I believe is the right way for us to move in terms of pastoral theology, is that uh, it springs from Pope Francis' notion that the Eucharist is not a price for the perfect. It's, it's healing and medicine for those in need of God's help. Well, that's all of us. It's it's not a reward. It doesn't go only to the to the the best behaviors. And so our role in the church should be to expand uh, the openness of the Eucharist for all those who are, I'm talking about Catholics now, who are striving to live by the gospel and the teaching of the church. I believe they should all be uh, welcomed into the Eucharist. Does that require a change to the catechism, which does say that, you know, if you approach the Eucharist with a in a state of grave sin, um, without going to confession first, that you know you're pouring judgment on yourself um, and damning yourself. So is is this just a different way of interpreting that that gives more weight to conscience? There are two things here. One is that citation from Saint Paul on drinking and eating unworthily. All right, and and you, you damn yourself. It's interesting. Saint Paul never speaks about what is the subject matter he's talking about there. Hmm. He never, mm-hmm. there's no substance to what he's saying. If you do this, and and what my problem is, we have cast violations of the Eucharist for which you need to not go to the Eucharist or go to confession first each time. We have cast them in, largely in terms of sexual things. We don't say it's automatically a mortal sin to discriminate against somebody. We don't say it's automatically a mortal sin to rip off your employees or exploit them. We don't say it's it's automatically a moral sin to mistreat your children or your spouse. Those are very serious elements of the moral life, but we don't automatically say those are mortal sins. We do about, it, it springs from this notion that comes to us from the 16th century that um, all sexual sins are mortal, okay? And that's what I'm challenging in the, Yes, I, I don't think that's a good part of the Catholic moral tradition. And I think that's going to come as a breath of fresh air to a lot of people, you know, hearing hearing a cardinal say that. Um, it, but it's also going to come as like a real, you know, challenge, a shock, um, because I think for a lot of people, if I if I try to get in their head a little bit, they go, well, wait, I have lived my life as if that were true at, at great sacrifice and cost. And now all of a sudden I feel like, you know, <laughs> the the rug's being pulled out from under me. Um, how do you like talk to someone who thinks that like this idea of inclusion and welcoming is somehow like undermining um, what we believe or what we have believed as Catholics? Let's just look at that whole area of sexuality. Our sexual lives have many areas of sinfulness in them. I'm not challenging that. I'm not changing the contours of that. All I'm saying is that in the Christian moral life, they don't automatically represent mortal sin. Mortal sin in Catholic teaching is a sin so grave that it is objectively capable of cutting off our relationship with God. That's pretty severe. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is that framework doesn't fit, but that doesn't at all diminish 
the call to chastity that each of us has in our own lives, in our own states, and particularly to live by what I think is the central assertion of Catholic faith in the sexuality, which is sexuality, sexual activity is something profound rather than something casual. That's where our church really comes up against society. Our society doesn't believe that. And I think across our teachings morally in the sexual world, that's that's the basic impulse. It's something profound, not something casual. And it's something that teaches, uh, reaches very deeply into the personal, spiritual, moral, uh, emotional lives of people. And so uh, that's all the, I'm not challenging any of that. I am simply yeah. saying for us to uh, chart out this one area of human life and say, that automatically is, no matter the level of it or anything, that's automatically mortal sin. I don't think that 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 is consistent with the moral universe, Catholic moral universe of our theology at its best. One thing that comes to mind is what you're describing is a very pastoral approach, I would say. Um, and one of the common retorts to to that approach of, you know, meeting people where they're at, um, welcoming them is, you know, that the most loving thing you can do is present people with the truth. Um, I'm wondering how, how you respond to that sort of line of reasoning. Well, I'm going to c cite uh, St. John Paul II here in a very important teaching uh, in Familiaris Consortia, one of his encyclicals, uh, he, he, he said, um, the principle of gradualism lies at the heart of everyone's moral life. Uh, and what that is, it takes, it's, it's rooted in Jesus. When Jesus came to people, he didn't say, you want to follow me, you got to be perfect. If he had, the disciples wouldn't have made it past the first week. I mean, when we, when we look at yeah. who they were and how much they messed up time and again, you know, in the scriptures, he, he doesn't say that. He takes us where we are and calls us to move forward. Yes, it, it doesn't say live life as you want it. It doesn't matter whether it accords with the gospel. Or the teaching. That's not what he said. But, but Christ doesn't say you got to leap from where you are at this moment to perfection. That's not our humanity. It doesn't work that way. Uh, uh, Pope Francis has this line that, you know, uh, because uh, grace builds on nature, the grace of God acts progressively in our lives. And, and uh, St. Augustine had that beautiful insight, and I think everyone else who lives finds this to be true. His young adult years were in every way contrary to the gospel, at every level. Uh, and then he became, uh, uh, he had a conversion, he became very close to the church. But he says all through his confessions, I'm at the process of coming closer to God, and it's going to be never finished. And even at the end of his life, he says it's the end of confessions is, I'm not done yet. God hasn't done his work in me yet. And so uh, I, I think that's how we had to look on the Christian moral life. So that's what I would say to people who say, um, you know, is, is this forsaking uh, the call of Christ? And I've seen people say that. You know, they say, well, uh, uh, Jesus said to the adulterous woman, you know, sin no more. That's true. But they kind of miss, in my view, you miss the point of that parable if that's what you take away from it. What he says first by the whole event is, don't be judgmental toward this woman. And I think judgmental is, my own view is, 
Judgmentalism is the worst sin in the Christian life, okay? Because that's why Jesus talks about it so often. You won't find, if you look at the Gospels, read through them. Time and time and time again, he's talking about judgmentalism. It's because we all do it. We find it so easy to fall into that. And it's so harmful to people. So what the parable of the adulterous woman is about is don't be judgmental. It's not that he, he was harsh toward the woman that uh, caught in adultery. He was generous with her. That's the whole thing. Now, he says, yes, live the Christian life. But that's the gradualism, I think, that really lies at the heart of what, what Christ's method was. Well, and so much, and maybe to, I don't know, this is partaking in some of that judgmentalism a little bit, but like in my view, a lot of this is just like classic, like prodigal son. Like we're all living out the parable of the prodigal son all the time, right? And I think a lot of us in the church are just ready to be the older brother to say like, father, why didn't you tell, like, tell him about all the things he should have done or that he should start doing or that the way he, even the way he's coming back is wrong. I think there's like a lot of people in the life of the church right now that are just eager to, um, under the guise of proclaiming the truth, um, tell people all the things that they're doing wrong. I had a, 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 a professor of scripture and he used to say, whenever you read a parable, Look at the person you don't like. See, that's who you are, or that's who you mm -hmm. lean toward being. And, and this is a clear example of it. You know, I find myself in that position, you know, of the older son many, many times, you know. Why don't, why don't you do something about that person, God, you know? And yet that's not our role. It is it's certainly what not called Christ calls us to be and do. I think one other common fear, and one that I sometimes share, is that you know, if we look at, you know, maybe not changing church teaching, but de-emphasizing some or emphasizing others or um, kind of taking down some of the rules, we, we, we get closer to a place where um, Catholics are, they're going to split. You know, it used to be you're, they're, the saying is, you know, when Protestants disagree, they form new churches. When uh, Catholics disagree, they form new religious orders. But on some of these really fundamental questions about sexuality, uh, women's ordination, um, same-sex marriage, I those don't seem like places where we can just agree to disagree in the long run. And so just having these conversations can bring up some anxiety for Catholics. And so uh, what would you say to someone who who fears that by, you know, even touching these sensitive issues around um, sexuality that that we're, we're, you know, risking the scary S word of schism? I think there are a couple issues. One is um, there's another scary word too, and that is drift, all right? Uh, by not addressing some of these issues of inclusion, we're losing the younger generation. The other thing in a very hopeful way is um, Russ, uh, Russ Douthat had a, a, an article in the New York Times uh, this past week that was on my article and then on something Cardinal Pell had written on uh, that memo. Uh, and in which he said, uh, we're heading, he says we're heading towards schism because both sides believe it's all or nothing, it's victory or loss. Okay. I don't think that's what synodality is all about. I think it's the opposite of synodality. And so as we head into this synodal process of discernment, as I said, the beautiful thing about our local 
dialogues was people who disagreed came together and in faith shared and were energized and supported in their faith, even though they were disagreeing. That's what we had to strive for. This is not a manifesto that we need to tr be from here. It's, 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 it's gradual. You know, it's gradualism too in the life of the church. How do we move towards some of these things? And, and also it's being attentive to the, uh, uh, the hurts of those who are more traditional Catholics too. You know, it's not that it's a win-lose. It's not that, uh, what I've written or anybody writes on inclusion is, is the uh, framework for where we got to get to by 2024 or we fail. That isn't it. It's that we've got to ask prayerfully uh, with people from all over the world. That's the other thing. We're a universal church. Yeah. Sometimes that's an easy reality and a wonderful reality. Sometimes it's a hard reality to experience. But we're as a universal church going to pray through, work through, and come to some conclusions on these questions. Um, one of the things that I think is not helpful is that some people who uh, um, are opposed to the synod in various ways or ur urging tremendous caution on the synod. Um, uh, many of them don't want any changes. Okay. Well, uh, that's an all or nothing victory too. I'm curious because you have staked out some claims in this, in this article, uh, for example, on, on women deacons and what you've talked about inclusivity. Um, how are you, spiritually preparing yourself to go into the synod um, with a, with your own mind open to to being changed by by what you hear from I don't know that I'll church. be at the synod so uh, you know so so I probably won't Cardinals don't get an automatic pass <laughs> No 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 they don't get an automatic uh, seat but say I'm an observer I'm back here by diocese watching all this and uh, I hope those things that I enunciated can come to pass some of them are very easy. For example, roles that women have, and it's not just women, lay people as a whole, in terms of running parishes, okay? Uh, when a priest is not a pastor of a parish, they have, a priest can be an administrator. He has both the title and the full functions other than a few things of what a pastor can do. And these are legal distinctions in canon law, right? That, that's right. There are certain provisions in canon law which, which uh, don't allow women and frankly, lay people as a whole to do certain things that they're eminently qualified to do. That's an easy fix. That has nothing to do with doctrine. The Pope took steps in this direction recently when he reformed the Curia, that is the central administration of the church, to allow non-bishops to be heads of major departments. So that's certainly going to include women and, uh, and, lay, and, and, and men, lay men. So at all levels in the church, that kind of change can and should take place. Um, and I don't think there's tremendous opposition to that except for inertia. The, the diaconate is a harder one because that's a, a long tradition. There's a big question to what degree in the early church did women uh, undertake the role or were they entrusted with the role of being deacons in the early church? There's a lot of evidence which indicates they were. So it's not the same problem you have with having women priests in the church, because it looks clearly like there were women who were doing the work of deacons and were uh, ordained in various ceremonies. So, so it's easier to do that. And so I think uh, when I was at the Amazon Synod, uh, there were about 200 
bishops from Latin America there, the Amazon region, they were overwhelmingly in favor of women deacons. It was a proposal. It didn't get adopted because we were only a regional city and we thought, well, we shouldn't do a universal principle on that. But there was overwhelming support. So I think that will be, a, 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 that's not a major change in doctrine. You know, getting back to Ashley's question a little bit, you don't know if you'll be at the upcoming synod, but maybe just in your general approach to practicing synodality um, in your home diocese and in your in your life as a bishop, how, what are like some things you do to like, stay open to the spirit or open to the person in front of you who you maybe like nominally disagree with. Um, because I think that's a like real temptation for all of us to kind of fall into is to just like have our, our priors, like always wanting to be confirmed all the time. Yes. Uh, and I say it's a temptation for bishops pretty severely. Um, partly where I had to restrain myself is not giving my viewpoints in a determinative way. Even if I'm not intending to be determinative, they have that mm. effect. Uh, but truly listening, and I mean listening to every view before sometimes commenting on things, uh, it, that's important. So I've tried to be changing that, but it's not, it, th those parts are hard to become synodal. What we did in our small group sharing, we followed a process that was developed for prisons. And it was called the council process. And what it was is you, they sit in circles, but the, the innovation we had was it was only one person was talking at a time and then they talked within reasons all they want to. And then no one could interrupt, no one could say anything, no could could make a even an aside or anything. So we had, according to this process, there's a little piece that the speaker holds in his or her hand. And it's, it's a visible symbol, I'm talking now. And it was amazing. We used a little cross. It was, and then you pass it around. People didn't violate that rule. That's what made listening, where you're truly listening, rather than thinking about what am I going to say next to make my point, rather listening to what profoundly to what people have to say. So that's a huge change in our culture that, that we have to do. And, and then inclusion is a major element of this, is how do we invite in people who don't feel empowered and included and wanted in the life of the church. Uh, when we did our, our, our study, our statistical study uh, of the 27,000 people, one of the questions was, um, if I stopped coming to church, to my parish, would I be missed? And a shocking number of people put no. And so that's something we got to work on to make in our communities not only more welcoming, but make people feel they count in various ways. So yeah. there's a whole cultural change that can and should occur at each level in the life of our our church at the universal, at the diocesan level, at the parish level, uh, and in terms of people's own lives. And that's a big challenge, but I, I think that's the most rewarding thing that lies before us. You mentioned um, the role of women in the church as being maybe one of the lower hanging fruit where there's more agreement, less official change to church teaching is needed. Um, I think in terms of inclusion, the other group that often comes up in these conversations is LGBT Catholics. And there, I think, one, there's not as much agreement in the U.S. and in the global church about how we should approach LGBT Catholics. And two, we have this language about homosexuality being intrinsically disordered um, and the distinction you mentioned in your piece about orientation and sexual activity. 
so that that's I know this is a <laughs> big big question, but is that a place where you know you would advocate for change in that language, change in church discipline? I've said for some years I felt, and others have too, rather prominently, that the intrinsically disordered language is a disservice. The problem is it's it's used in that catechism as a philosophical term. It makes one's, but to us in our country and really most of the world, disorder is thought of as psychological. And that it's a terrible word and it, sh it should be taken out of the catechism, yes. Um, on, the, on the question of the distinction between um, uh, you know, activity and orientation. Uh, the point I was trying to make in the article was God's embrace of LGBT uh, people, like the church's embrace, should be whether they're active or not. It, that that should not be, uh, that should not determine whether we seek to include people, reach out to them, uh, look on them as fellow strivers, with strengths and weaknesses and areas where they're doing well. It's not that the difference between activity and orientation doesn't matter. It does. But that shouldn't be the foundation for how we approach LGBT people. We should across the board be saying, we look on you like us, people who are trying in often difficult circumstances to live our lives here in this world, uh, to live by the gospel to the best we can, knowing that we fail knowing that sometimes we fail time and again in the same area. That's one of the things about human nature. Uh, when I was a, a pre young priest, and I was hearing confessions a lot. People would come and say, oh, I'm so upset that I, I'm confessing the same sins over and over again, no matter what area their lives are. That's how we are, because we have the, it, our personalities have a rather rigid structure to them. So that's the framework, I think, for us to look on this whole LGBT questions. Uh, my pastoral vision and goal here in San Diego is to make, and it's hard to accomplish this, to make LGBT people feel equally welcome in the life of the church as everyone else. But that's my goal. And I really feel that that's Christ, that Christ would totally agree with that, 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 that he'd want every person, every LGBT person and their families to feel equally welcome in the life of the church. Uh one big fear, Cardinal, I have, and uh, I I'm really worried about the Synod, maybe for different reasons than other people, but I think now that we've undergone this massive listening exercise, I think it's one thing to uh, sort of ignore people um, and not ask for their opinion. It's an entirely other thing to ask for their opinion and disregard it. And so if we get to the end of all of this, and we, there is not a lot of agreement or reconciliation on some of these the, these things that feel like they're irreconcilable. I worry that we're going to lose <laughs> an entire generation, my generation and, and beyond. Uh, sh am I right to be afraid? Let me say yes and no. Okay. I have some of that same fear. Okay. In other words, the synodality is very diffuse. Okay. The one interesting thing is all these reports from all over the world, with a few exceptions, are pointing to common themes. There are some differences, but they're really common themes overall. That's a stunningly important reality. Yeah. I would say the reason not to be worried, or I'm not so as worried as I would be ordinarily, is I went to this Amazon Synod, all right? <clears throat> and they had this listening press process there. And frankly, when I heard about it, I thought, oh, give me a break. How, how are you going to have the 9 million people in the Amazon region, most of whom are Catholic, uh, 
consulted and come out with some some commonality to it and report that would make sense. They did. A tremendous amount of good got accomplished. Not everything that was on the agenda got accomplished. But I have the sense that the people who participated in the process in that moment in, in the Amazon felt there was an integrity to what, what was done with their input and then as it came to various levels reflected upon and then in the, the universal synod as a whole. I feel that had a good outcome. Cardinal, I want to thank you for uh, taking so much time with us to continue the conversation uh, about your article in America. Uh, we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests here on Jesuitical, and that is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I would canonize St. Francis again. Whoa, whoa. Okay, hang on. Let me, let me, <laughs> let me tell you why. All right. I believe... Other than the Blessed Mother, St. Francis is the greatest saint for us, particularly in our times, but in the life of the church. That is, um, in his understanding of renunciation of the total acceptance and uh, embrace of the gospel, of his reaching out to other people of all different kinds. You know, he went to the Muslim world and dialogued, uh, his appreciation for the beauty of creation. Uh, and for the presence and grace of God in so many ways in people's lives. Two candidates. St. Francis squared. <laughs> it's in case the first one wasn't done right, I'd give him another because I think he's such a sterling figure for our times to inspire us. All right. That's another first for our show. Yeah. No one has tried to recanonize someone. So in, in the rules that we totally made up, we will make an exception. All right. <laughs> You just asked why I'd canonize. You didn't say it had to be someone who had <laughs> that before. That's a very good point. That's a very Jesuitical way around that. Cardinal McElroy, thank you so much. Um, uh, again, we will link to the article in our show notes, um, and we hope to uh, read you in America again soon. Great. Thanks a lot. God bless. Close your eyes, hear the voice within calling this heavy load The white knuckles holding on a tie, keeping your feelings bottled up inside. Head in Looking for an Ignatian perspective on pop culture, current events, and spiritual happenings in the world today? Each week, join Jesuits, friends of Jesuits, and everyday folks trying to live for the greater glory of God on AMDG, a Jesuit podcast. Produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. All right, now it's time for parish announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Um, just a quick note, uh, a couple weeks ago we talked to Bradley Onishi of the Straight White American Jesus podcast about uh, the rise of Christian nationalism and the dangers it poses to our country and our church. And we had so much fun with Brad that we decided to take the party to his place. Um, so Ashley and I are on the Straight White American Jesus podcast this week. We Episode dropped Monday. We're talking about some of the work that we've done writing on the Latin Mass, Ashley's feature reporting on Wyoming Catholic College. What Catholic traditionalism says about conservatism, where those things intersect and where they don't really line up. Um, so you can check that out where you're listening to this podcast. It's in the Straight White American Jesus feed. 
And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of the show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, And Zach, we have a shared experience that we can talk about this week. Yeah, so Ashley and I spent the weekend traveling to Jamaica to visit uh, Mustard Seed Communities, which is a really fantastic ministry, uh, something we've talked about on this show before. We've, we had their founder, uh, Monsignor Gregory Ramakassoon, on the show on Giving Tuesday a couple years back. Um, but this is the first time we'd seen their, their, their operation sort of up close and on the ground. Um, Jamaica's where it started. Um, they're where the mission really came from, um, looking at kids with severe disabilities who had been abandoned. Um, and Monsignor Gregory um, sort of looked around and said, we have to do something about this. And so they provide sort of housing, love, and care, wraparound service for their entire lives, right? And so in even into adulthood for some of these kids. And th- I, I thought this was like a really good thing to talk about this week because, and, and, and on this week's episode, because we're talking a lot about of we started the show talking about Jean Vanier and and sexual abuse and these structures. Um, and then Cardinal McElroy, we're talking about some of the like high level debates that are happening in the church. And for me, it's really easy to lose sight of some of the things that are happening on the ground when when you're confronted with bad news in the church or when you're just like super into the, the theological or ecclesiological debates that are happening. And sometimes I'm tempted by the evil spirit to think that is the experience of church, right? Um, and it's not to say those things aren't important um, because they definitely are. Uh, but when we were there on the ground, it was just, it, I was, it was a breath of fresh air for me to just see like the church doing what it does best at its best um, and really, you know, being Jesus to so many people. Yeah, that's totally the way I would put it too, is that in the gospels, Jesus speaks in parables that to our ears and to the people he was talking to at the time made no sense. Like they defied the logic of the world. And that was the experience I had in Mustard Seed. Like it it, it doesn't make sense. Like you, Or it seems impossible what they've been able, able to do um, with so little and just, and the whole ethos. It's, you know, we have a, a world that values productivity and uh, efficiency, and that's that's just not how it runs. It it looks at the individual, the hardest people to take care of, and doesn't just keep them alive. It helps them thrive to the whatever their ability is. Like you said, looking at that, I feel like helped me to understand Jesus in a way that these theoretical uh, arguments that take up so much of my time as a thinking Catholic, just, it doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't bring me closer to Jesus or understanding the gospel. All right, I'll take us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're with Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.